welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summary. Have you heard of the app Sweatcoin? If you haven't, it's got 120 million users. And according to their website, they want a billion. And I probably packed them to get there, to be honest. The founder is a guy called Anton, and he's on the podcast today. Uh, Sweatcoin is a, well, it's a piece of tech. It's an app that helps you get more active. It rewards you for taking your daily activity. So those daily steps, those 10,000 steps, you can essentially turn those steps into currency, their own sort of new gen currency and exchange that for things. And so for you and I, we can get up, we can get active, we can do things. But the reason on the podcast today is because they've got work going on with the NHS, which means that for conditions that are benefited by exercise, this and the behavioral science that goes into everything that they do can essentially get those people exercising more and therefore reducing uh, how bad their chronic condition is, preventing chronic conditions, preventing chronic disease, and essentially reducing the burden on the NHS itself. So they've had grants from the Health Innovation Network and other people too, and they've got this activity going on which is genuinely helping with long-term conditions. And so that's what I talk about with Anton today. Obviously, it's quite an inspiration behind what he's doing and how he's got to where he is and how they're going after that billion billionth user. Um, super exciting what they're up to. Uh, really inspiring story from Anton. So I hope you enjoy this one. Hey, everybody. This week, I am joined by Anton Derlachter, and he's CEO and co-founder of Sweatcoin. Anton and his co-founders recognized how the modern world was conspiring to make us less physically active with factors like increased delivery services, remote work, all contributing to this kind of pandemic of inactivity, which results in this kind of rapid increasing prevalence of poor health conditions like diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So that is how Sweatcoin, which is effectively air miles for steps, was born. Uh, Their free app harnesses behavior science to incentivize people to become more physically active, rewarding users for their daily steps with in-app loyalty points. And those are redeemable for goods in their Sweatcoin marketplace. Um, So in this episode, we're going to be discussing how Sweatcoin has partnered with the NHS to take the pandemic of inactivity, or tackle it, shall I say, and what this could mean for the future of healthcare. It's been downloaded by over 150 million users worldwide, and last year was the most downloaded health and fitness app in the world. So Anton, uh, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, very good, and thank you very much for having me, James. You're very welcome, Anton. You're very welcome. Um, yeah, heck of a story that, and um, 150 million users worldwide. That is that is unbelievable. And obviously, now moving on to tackling some serious health stuff in the NHS and your projects that are going on there. So, really looking forward to getting into this, man. But I know that you've got a really interesting background personally, and so um, why don't you kick off by telling us a bit of your story? Hmm. Sure. Uh, look, I, I was born in a, in a very interesting place called Tashkent, the capital of Uzbekistan now. A very, very interesting place growing up there, formative years, you know, lots of different cultures, lots of different religions there. But then, you know, one thing led to another. My parents were civil engineers. So I was always into 
you know, math and physics and, and at the same time into some wacky ideas somehow. I uh, started uh, doing some kind of small-time entrepreneurial things at the age of, I think, 11 or 12. But then I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur one day. So my dream at the time was, you know, eventually to become a computer programmer, which I felt was very, very, very cool. It was early days, obviously the times, the days of PC and everything. And uh, and then, you know, uh, I, I did that. So I got the uh, master's degree in computer science. And halfway through, I just realized that I wouldn't be a great computer programmer because I had too many different interests. And also, you know, the environment contributed. There was this, you know, the market economy thing going on in the new country. And, you know, I got into, you know, firstly into some business activities and then, you know, into corporate world uh, where I worked for companies like Pepsi Cola and uh, Reebok. And then I moved to London because I... Uh, I had an opportunity to do an MBA and uh, I, I decided to take it. Uh, interesting part of my background, again, some people say, do, do, do you do an MBA, do you not do an MBA? For me, it was certainly a great, great opportunity to change my life. Whether the curriculum itself was exceptional, not sure about that, but that certainly was a great, great turning point in my career. And that made me essentially want to leave the corporate world. I tried a few things during the uh, during my MBA. There was a time when I tried to launch my first ever technology startup, which failed absolutely miserably. <laughs> but that was the first time I, so to speak, uh, dabbled in all things talent because I was always quite attracted to the area. Mm. And... Uh, because of my previous experience with Reebok, um, I was head of marketing there. That actually, all of a sudden, my career took a very sharp turn. I joined a management consulting firm called, uh, currently called Kearney. And there I did, uh, I participated in the development of their global sports management practice, which took me to very different places uh, around, the, around the globe from Ukraine, which I love dearly, and uh, I was uh, in Donetsk, actually working for Shakhtar Donetsk, which is a, oh, a nice. football club yeah, participating yeah. in the Champions League. And I was even a an interim uh, commercial director there for a few months. Oh, wow. Because they liked what we proposed so much that they wanted us to stay and implement it. Mm. So, you know, still great friends with, uh, with the club and the management. And then, you know, it took me to places like South Africa, where I helped the South African Football Association to essentially kick off their preparation for the 2010 World Cup. Uh, so, I mean, lots of uh, engagement, involvement in, in the kind of sports-related uh, areas. Mm. But then, you know, I also realized that after that business school, you know, traveled the world quite a lot. And then again, I was a bit, uh, a bit fed up with working for someone. And this is how, you know, I, I don't think that I'm a natural-born entrepreneur. It's just... It's like uh, Churchill said once that, you know, the democracy is a pretty bad system, but everything else is even worse. <laughs> and I personally think that entrepreneurship is a little bit like that. I mean, you know, it's not great. It's stressful. It can be stressful at times and it's very unpredictable, but everything else is, is even worse. So I ended up just deciding to go on my own. I joined a, uh, a company that already in existence. I acquired a share in that company and then we together 
built it to a pretty uh, sizable state. It was in the uh, talent uh, talent space. There was a little bit of different businesses. There was recruitment. There was consulting. There was executive coaching, and that kind of took me to the technology frontier because then I realized that uh, the things that we were doing they were great in terms of margins. They were very cash rich, but they were not particularly scalable. Mm. And uh, we decided to create a small seed, seed super angel fund. Uh, that took me to California, and I started building my network in the in the people tech, in the talent tech, uh, in that space. And one thing led to another, and then I never had a shortage of ideas. And one mm. of those ideas I really, really liked, started thinking about that, started discussing it with my friends and people that could help me kind of improve it and iterate and, you know, because the idea didn't really fly at that stage. And then yeah. I think the turning point when, uh, was uh, meeting my now co-founder, Oleg, uh, who was very passionate about all things, you know, future. Mm. Uh, and uh, we started chatting and then the idea kind of almost like took a complete form and shape and we decided to kick it off. So I think that, you know, long story short, um, you know, since then we've acquired quite a lot of users, uh, but the product is still very simple. We never changed it. And mm -hmm. the essence is uh, very simple. We do believe that physical activity has value. It's valuable, literally. Mm -hmm. And we do believe that there's a very nice and neat way to make people sustainably more active by creating a new habit. And that's what mm -hmm. we do. That's awesome. What a story. I mean, you, you, you've covered tech, sports, I suppose, learning about business in consultancy and MBA, investing with the Super Angel Fund. You've definitely, you've definitely covered a lot of ground there and acquired certainly the domain expertise, technical expertise, business expertise. It seems like it's interesting that you said actually that you're, you don't feel like a natural born entrepreneur, although you were doing entrepreneurial things at, since 11 and 12. It, you probably are. We certainly have entrepreneurial tendencies, but you're definitely someone that seems to have learned skills that have helped you become that entrepreneur and, and do those things later, later in life. My first question, though, is about the MBA in London that you, that you said you did. Um, you, you described that as a turning point, and it and you said it made me want to leave the corporate world. That's quite an interesting statement because the way I perceive MBAs is that actually they prepare you for the corporate world, i.e. they prepare you to make that leap into senior management, and they give you all this theory. And I've heard from a few, you know, I've not done one myself, but I've heard from a few people, you know, the curriculum isn't the main gig in town here. It's the network and things like that. But when you say it made you want to leave the corporate world, that does seem at odds with my perception of what they're there to do or broadly what people tend to do. So what was it about that MBA that made you mm -hmm. want to actually leave the corporate world or even gave you the confidence to leave the corporate world? Because was the curriculum actually in line with entrepreneurship? You tell me. That's a great question, James. I think that at the end of the day, it all depends very much on what you are, you know, what's your baggage, what's your intentions when you're going into an MBA. And indeed, some people go like, okay, you know, I want to I wanna accelerate my career or I want to enable my career, you know, to develop further. I was going at it from a completely different standpoint. So I had a, by the end of, by the age of 27, because I started so early, I thought, 
and uh, I was completely wrong there. But I thought that I had a very successful career. I was one of the youngest marketing directors in geography and everything. So I was over, overly confident. I felt that I knew everything there was to know about the business and about the industry. And, you know, to me, it was almost, okay, what's next? And mm. when, I, when I did the MBA, I kind of at that stage, it was a bit different. Right now, lots of MBAs want to go into venture capital. Uh, they want to mm. go into product management. They want to go into startups. You know, at that stage, it was much more about, okay, I go to, into investment banking or management consulting or maybe the industry. And not, none of it really was appealing, particularly. Right. Because it's, you know, I just discovered this and I just realized that the world is so much richer and yeah. so much more exciting, much more interesting. And lots of those careers, and again, no disrespect, there's wonderful opportunities, wonderful openings for lots of people, but I just didn't feel it was as exciting for me um, mm. because I wanted to open up my horizons rather than define my career for the next 20 years. Mm. You mentioned at the end of your story there, meeting Oleg. You described him as passionate about the future. Um, can you tell me a bit more about meeting that co-founder? Were you, were you on the lookout for a co-founder at this point? Was this someone that you were actively pursuing for various reasons? Is it someone you even interviewed for? I mean, t- tell me about... Tell me about Oleg and the, I guess, the, the, the co-founding of Sweatcoin. Yeah. Look, uh, by that time, by the way, I had known Oleg for quite a long time. So it's not like we, we, we only uh, met uh, for the very first time. But yes, in, indeed, I think that when you start of, you know, when you start thinking about launching a business, it's always the question, okay, do you have an idea? Uh, do you have resources? And then finally, most importantly, do you have a team? <laughs> and uh, from that perspective, yes, indeed, I was thinking about how to potentially, you know, I did think that there was an idea. Uh, I didn't think it was complete, so that needed some extra work on. Mm. But then also, usually when you you know the idea is great, then the next step is who do, do you, do you want to work on this with? Mm. And in case of Oleg, it was a double whammy because A, he helped me completely shape up this idea and secondarily he at that stage he was available he was passionate it was just the point you know the juncture point in our careers was very uh, opportune and it would be silly not to not to take advantage of this what's what's his background uh he you know also corporate a little bit of corporate background marketing i think he worked for pepsi coca-cola uh, he then also worked briefly in management consulting. Uh, so, and then he, he was a, uh, a technology entrepreneur. So, uh, uh, unlike me, because I didn't had, uh, I didn't have a technology element in my career. I was an entrepreneur. I was an entrepreneur, but not in technology sector. He had the, his previous startup in the technology sector, mm. which was unfortunately winding down at the stage at that, at that point. Mm. And that kind of made him think about the next page. I know that lots of people think about think about starting something on their own. And I think there's two ways of doing this. One is to be a sole founder, mm. which in some cases works. In some others, you probably want to have at least one co-founder. 
Uh, I think when, when it works is when you have some extra resources because nobody's a complete package. You know, you will always have some weaknesses. And the best way to do it is to have your co-founders complement your weaknesses. Mm. Uh, whereas, you know, if you, if you have some resources, if you've got some funding and you can afford hiring those people working for you, then obviously you can be a sole co-founder, a sole founder, and then you know to have people complimenting you who work almost like on a, mm. uh, the the uh, executive uh, uh, suite uh, level. But mm. that you know, in case of most startups, you don't have money, you don't have uh, resources, so you end up just you know being the founding team, which splits the responsibilities and kicks off. So from that perspective, it's very very important to have that very early good quality team mm. uh, with good chemistry and uh, clear complementary skill sets. Yeah, definitely. Complementary skills, so, so, so important for co-founders. And I've seen that ever since running accelerators and looking at the successes of the people around me, you know, the, the, the complementary skills thing is such, such, such a big one. I think a lot of people tend to, or can end up going into business with a friend that's very similar, or they find someone in their domain that's very similar, i.e. two clinicians, for example, but where one of them is a you know a coder and the other one is a complete and utter domain expert in academia, it, you know there's there's so much power to that because of what can be achieved by two two people rather than one. I think the other thing to mention about co-founders there though as well is that I, I mean I have a lot of respect for people that can be solo founders because I think a huge element of a co-founding relationship is this is the the support. You talked about entrepreneurship being you know a heck of a journey and difficult. And, you know, this journey can beat you up every day. I remember Jack on this podcast from Oka Bio just said, like, I think he thinks his greatest skill is just repeatedly being able to get punched in the head by his business, his market, his everything else, being a founder, just the resilience to actually be an entrepreneur. I think a co-founder as well just gives you that someone to lean on. It gives you that person that can understand just as deeply as you what those ups and downs actually mean because it's very it's very difficult to i think explain to somebody or it's actually very difficult i think to get even a senior executive team to care about it as much as you do and therefore to feel the bumps in the road as much as you do and that's understandable because they just don't have the same level of equity as you they don't have the same skin in the game as you do and so i think it's fair but i do i, I do think the the, the co-founder relationship also is about support. And I think that that for me becomes an incredibly important part. I don't know if you agree. Uh, very true. Uh, having said this, I think that people underestimate how when you put your mind to it, it's, it's not that difficult to build a team with very shared purpose and vision and passion. Mm. It's just, it's just, you just need to do it intentionally and, uh, um, with a very clear understanding of what you're doing, how you're doing, uh, and building that culture. Hmm. So I know, I know what you're talking about. Sometimes it's just, you know, it's not as easy to make people that work for you as employees or your team to feel as passionate. Reality is that, you know, if you do it well, or if you do it okay, even, hmm. then it's going to be fine. Hmm. So I think that's not, let's not underestimate the importance of building the team right and building the right culture. Mm. And if that is done well, then the rest of it is, is easier, much, much easier. It sounds like you put a, an emphasis on that then in, you know, in Sweatcoin and the companies that you build. So how do you do that? 
practically what is are you are you looking for something particular in hiring is it something that you do in the way that you manage or structure i mean how do you how do you foster that shared purpose passion vision to get people aligned and yeah. you know all pulling in the same direction how do you how do you guys go about that that's a great question uh, actually i follow a very simple framework here so firstly in order for you to start building a culture you need to understand, you need to be aware of what those cultural pillars or elements of those cultural, you call values, are. Mm. And in all cases, in 100% of cases in startups, those values, especially early stage, uh, those values are the extension of personal values of the, founding, of, of the founders. So the first step is you need to be aware of what, what are your values. What is acceptable? What is unacceptable? What works? What doesn't work? In what way do you want to approach things? And for us, it was very, very clear early on what we really liked, what we disliked, how we operated. So even when we were less than 10 people, we already articulated certain principles. Uh, so that's, that's the first step. You know, you need to be aware. You don't necessarily want to create a document and make it a an externally facing document, because when you're small, it's all uh, on a verbal level. So second step is when you, uh, when, you've articul when you have become aware of this, you then need to translate it into clearly actionable things that you apply when you're hiring people. And very early on with the hiring, uh, uh, we've created some hiring principles. So we've created what we call six traits that we expect in everybody who joins the company. And those traits, they are, they are kind of an external document, but those traits, they derive from the values that we articulated. And once you've done that, you've created a, 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 you know, a very clear selection process or very clear uh, uh, funnel that only makes sure that people that share the same principles, that share the same traits, uh, join your company mm. so that the material on entry is already different. Mm. And then the third stage is that you need to continue to foster that culture because, you know, sometimes you make a recruitment error and somebody who does not necessarily share your value joins, which is also fine because people are different. And sometimes every now and then, you know, they're not bad people. They're not terrible professionals. They're great people. They just don't share the same set of values as we do. And we cannot... By the way, we cannot make everybody happy. Like, you know, we are such a small subset of the great and diverse world that we as a company will only work for a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of all people in the world. So it's perfectly fine. But, you know, when, when people join, we need to make sure that whether they align to the values or not is very clear to them and to everybody else. Mm. Because if somebody doesn't behave that way, they need to be aware of this. And once you do that consistently, once you encourage people behaving in the way that is consistent with your values and you discourage them behaving differently, this is where the, the culture starts to strengthen itself. Yeah. And then the culture starts working almost by itself because it rejects things that are alien to it. And it absorbs things that are native to it. Mm. 
So three very simple steps. I think that, you know, A, be aware, B, translate it into clear uh, acceptance principles, and three, maintain, maintain and improve and strengthen. Yeah, I love that. I think the key bit there, well, there's two key bits, I think. The first one is actually being incredibly clear on what your values are and doing that work. I think that's so, so, so important. And then it's the translation of what do those values mean in terms of behaviors and therefore let's hire for them. Let's call them out when they're positive and people do them. Let's reinforce them. And it's that link between what the values are and what the behaviors are that reflect them. That's the important bit because so many times you see, don't you, like, on the wall, people have got things written, but their behaviors are just completely at odds with those things. They're just something that's written. Whereas when they're policed in terms of reflection into behaviors, as you say, that's how you can actually and genuinely build culture and get to the point of it becoming self-policing. With culture, it's so easy to get wrong in terms of being uh, too bureaucratic, too formal. Yeah. You know, how many of, of us, probably 100%, uh, remember the case you enter a conference room, a dull room saying, oh, whatever, integrity, um, uh, whatever, trust, you know, lots of great mm-hmm. words that are pretty meaningless. And that's something that we're trying to avoid because whenever you're trying to articulate those values, they need to be much clearer. They need to mm-hmm. be spoken in a human language, not in the corporate lingo, which I have a certain allergy to, I have to say. Good. Uh, so, yeah. But, you know, look, it's a, it's a huge conversation. It's probably a matter of no, a separate it is. podcast. It is. You know, how to build culture. And that that's, to me, is a very, that's, that's something that I'm very passionate about. But I think what you're talking about also is authenticity. I think there's there's that's what's coming through for me is that you you have a drive to be authentic, and I think that's nice. I think that's I think that's really it's really important that that you, I mean you mentioned trust there, and you know obviously people use that all the time. But if you're going to build trust, you need to be authentic. You need to be authentic as a leader, and you need to be authentic with what you're actually trying to achieve as a leader. And so that authenticity can then build that trust. If that authenticity leads to good values, leads to good behaviors, leads to good culture, then all of a sudden you've got a really nice flywheel. And I think you yeah. you do you do strike me as a very authentic person um, in the short time that I've known you anyway. But let's talk about Sweatcoins. So... Um, the part of the story that we're at, obviously, you've met, you've met Oleg and you're, you're building Sweatcoin now. Now, I'm interested in one r- really specific question here at the, at the start of Sweatcoin. How do you dream up a business model that just incentivizes people to exercise and, and get rewards and somehow everybody wins? How do you come up with that business model? It's a great question. And uh, the answer is like, it's not we had everything clear on day one. You know, it's basically there was a belief that you start with product, you build something that users love. And if you get lots of users, then you almost like, even if you are not 100% clear as to what you want to do, you'll figure that out. Hmm. So I think that what's absolutely essential for being an entrepreneur is that a reasonable balance of being very comfortable with uh a huge amount of uncertainty and at the same time being able to structure the chaos around you because those are two very essential essential skill sets 
you know, people that tend to work in management in, in corporate, they have less of that free spirit and, you know, uh, comfort with uncertainty because managers by default, they try to create order from chaos. That's mm -hmm. their job. A manager hates chaos. They want to make life more orderly. Mm -hmm. uh, entrepreneur, I think, is different. Entrepreneur thrives on uncertainty because uncertainty is an opportunity from an entrepreneur mm -hmm. perspective. So I think they're coming back to your initial question. We did start with product. We did start with the user because at the time, uh, there were some previous attempts to do what we wanted to do, and most of them failed, and we quite clearly realized why they would fail. Because the whole proposition for the user, it's very simple. You know, everybody's talking about the elevator pitch. I probably, I probably have never had an easier job at doing an elevator pitch because essentially when you speak to a user, you say, you know, you, you, you walk, we convert your steps, you know, we check that those steps are real. We convert your steps into a uh, loyalty currency, so to speak, or, you know, something. And then you you are capable of redeeming this for product service experiences, donate to charity and whatnot. So that's easy. The question is, how do you figure out the business model? And most of the failed attempts, they were going, okay, you know, who actually pays, so to speak, for, for your steps? And the answer inevitably would be, could be a healthcare provider like the NHS, an insurer, or an employer. And uh, none of those three options was particularly appealing because the sales cycle to all of those, especially the, the former two, is very, very long. And unless you have a considerable user base, it's very, very hard to get there. And with the employer, it's slightly different. It's easier to sell to, but it's such a red ocean. And the size of the contract is small, so you have to create a sales force that would sell it, and but you would never end up getting a contract for like 100,000 quid. You would always have a small contract that would, you would have to renew. And retention in that market is very, very low. So there was no ambition to be in a, an extremely fragmented, competitive B2B space. So what we said is that, look, let's start with product. Let's build a product that users love. Let's get the first million. And then the first million will either enable us to find a business model that will be different. And second, or second, you know, that million will give us leverage mm. to penetrate one of those sectors. So instead of just saying, okay, you know, let's build a prototype and then let's take it to one of the big ones and try to sell and sell and sell and sell and therefore become a B2B business. Because whenever that happens, inevitably the DNA is a B2B business that has a consumer proposition. Mm. And that would be a completely wrong thing to do for us because we built a consumer-facing, consumer-centric product that consumers loved, and then we figured out a way to sell it to businesses. Now, in our case, what we didn't expect is that the proposition to brands would be so successful because of the way we've structured the product. You know, the product wasn't like an Amazon where you can exchange your steps, your sweat coins into thousands of different products. We've created an experience that would be like a curated, literally a limited list of products. Initially it was four and every day there would be a new product. So every day you would have a new product and therefore like for the, for the, for the week you would just only have 12 products. That's it. 
And then when we started, you know, it was just 12, 12 brands that we had on the marketplace and were mostly from, you know, friends, family, neighbors, almost. Uh, but then, you know, as, as the users started to come in, you know, it became much easier for us to get those brands. And because the, there was scarcity and because the, you know, the availability of featuring in the marketplace wasn't there, at some point, we just realized that uh, the brand partners were queuing outside the doors, literally, and asking us, oh, you know, I'm due to be featured on the marketplace in two months. Can we make it next week? And this is where we realized we built something really attractive. And that, that's how we figured out the model uh, with brands and also, you know, other ways of making our users even more engaged and happy and at the same time earning uh, uh, money. So we've got a diversified uh, business model there, you know, three different, re you know, revenue channels. We've got the brand partnerships. We've got the paid subscription, you know, a special level that users pay for. And then we've got the uh, rewarded video, which is uh, our native feature that actually makes it pretty cool for the user to engage with ads. And right. users love it. And it's not, uh, it's not uh, compulsory. Mm. So if you don't want to watch the ad, you skip it. Mm. So that combination made us uh, a you know a profitable business relatively early, even though we continue to scale uh, in a pretty drastic way, which is quite rare, I admit, for the consumer internet products. So you know, you typically you sacrifice uh, profitability for growth, uh, or you sacrifice growth for pro profitability. You know, we try to do both. We've got a super scalable user acquisition model because our product is insanely viral. And at the same time, we also built a reasonably sustainable business model. If you mentioned this a few times, build something that users love or building it with love. And you also mentioned consumer centricity a few times there. It seems like you're obsessed with the user and that that is a core value here that you just care deeply about the experience of the user. That's the first thing that I'm pulling out here. The second thing that I'm pulling out here is this notion of, well, we're not quite sure what the perfect business model is, but we're not going to let that stop us. We're going to get to a million users and in an economy where you can get the attention of a million people, we can monetize and we're confident of that. And so if we combine those two things, our obsession with the user and our obsession with the experience and the great and the wonderful experience of that user, and we pair that with, well, let's now get a million of them and give them a wonderful experience. The correct business model will appear. It will be on the other side of that. That's a very entrepreneurial way of seeing the world. It's the anti-perfectionist way of seeing the world of not requiring it to be perfect and not quite knowing how you will be profitable, just knowing that if you do the right things, you will be. Um, can you talk to that a little but bit? James, that that's mindset? very risky. It's, it's very, it's very nice. Yeah. It's very nice to talk about that in the retrospect because, you know, well, quite. <laughs> talks about the success. Success stories, right? Yeah. And nobody talks about failures and lots of people went into it with the same mindset and they failed. Yeah. And I do feel for them because the timing maybe wasn't right or the circumstances weren't right or something else wasn't right. 
And for us, it was. So it was a risky yeah. um, undertaking. I mean, obviously, when you've got a product that people love, it's so much easier yeah. to dig yourself out of any hole. Yeah. And like, you know, people probably don't talk about that a lot, but there were many, many very successful businesses that once hit a rough patch and were close to bankruptcy. And they managed to dig themselves outside or out of the hole because they had a product that people loved. So at the end of the day, yeah. guys, you know, we need to be very clear. This is risky. Uh, but I think that it's, it's, it's basically so you build a product that people love. And by the way, on, on user obsession, do I consider us being 10 out of 10 on user obsession? No, not even close to that. I think that we can always do better on user obsession because at the end of the day, you always balance different things. You know, you, if you only build for the user and completely forget about the business, you're also done. You may be delivering against your mission and vision and the users absolutely love it, but if you've forgotten how to make money, and we've seen it so many times before, right? You know, companies raising, raising, raising hundreds of millions, and then you end up running out of cash and you fail and you have to either, uh, you know, shut the doors or just, you know, sell the business. So I think at the end of the day, you always try to balance this. And, you know, sometimes we have to put the business uh, uh, interest first. So like full transparency, you know, there's lots of room for us to improve on, yeah. you know, putting the user first. Having said this, this is indeed one of our values. One of our values is, you know, remember about the mission built for the user. So that's, and the mission is to make a billion people around the world more physically active. That's very simple. Uh, but but uh, on the business model, you want to think about this always. Uh, question is that sometimes overthinking it would essentially not make you want to jump into the water. Yes. I just want to thank you for talking about the risk there and to, to mention that many have tried and many have failed because I was at, I was at an event last night and hosted a panel and a few people which I've done for many, many years now. And someone came up to me at the end and was talking about the value of the advice and, and, and this, that and the other for, from, from the panelists, which I agreed was great advice. But I, I remember, I remember saying to this person last night, I just said, I've been doing these panels for, I don't know what it is now, eight years. And the people change on these panels. There's a couple of them that are still around, but actually the people that have been giving this advice, most of them have gone and there's a survivorship bias <laughs> That's great. to the people great. that great. are giving this advice on this uh, today like the, the advice that you've heard from people today you can't take it too too uh literally because i've heard this for a long time and actually people raise money build startups but they don't all become successful and and it was just an interesting reflection for me that that like that there is this we we as entrepreneurs that are in the game right now just as you've just done, we have to caveat with, but this was a risky strategy that worked for us. This was a strategy that worked for us. And so I appreciate you saying that because I think on this podcast, even 
maybe we evangelize the kind of the point and shoot direct advice that sounds really great. It's a lovely sound bite, but ultimately the realities are much more complex. The realities have a lot of risk attached to them. And we are just the survivors right now from a strategy that many adopted and many it, for whom it many didn't work for, you know? So I think it is an important caveat, but I just want to, before we get too deep into that, it's another eight hour podcast. Let's talk about SweatCon and what you're up to now. So can you tell me what, whereabouts you are now what your priorities are now i know that you've got a big priority with the nhs right now so let's talk about that yeah so look we continue to to kind of execute on that vision of essentially building an experience that encourages people to develop new habits and you know obviously the the best way to develop a new habit is through what behavioral scientists call intrinsic motivation whereas you know you convince yourself that this is good for you you know, that's the best strategy. However, it's not available to everyone. So we see that about 30% of the world population, they are open to that intrinsic motivation. And therefore, whenever you see somebody, you know, going for a run in a park or going to a heat training in the gym, these are the people who are already active. And these 30% are the people, the market that the modern wellness and fitness industry caters to. But how is that then the, the obesity curve is on the rise? It's actually, the answer is very simple. It's pushed up by the 70% of people who do not have that luxury or have access to that intrinsic, like, you know, to, to that way of cracking the problem. They do not buy it. They do not want to engage in yeah. physical activity. And we thought that there would be a different approach. And the, the approach is like a combination of gamification and rewards. And this is what we do. And the product that's available to everyone around the world, you know, drives a plus 20% increase in step count, on daily step count, you know, and that is happening by, through just very simple principles. So the products that we make available to our users in exchange for steps, we get them from our brands completely for free. And on top of that, brands pay us for featuring the product in the marketplace. But when we collaborate with somebody like the NHS, essentially the way it works is that the NHS funds the additional range of products that's available to a select uh, group of people. In our case, it's participants of the diabetes prevention program. So the steps for them, for that group, become even more valuable. And that's, that's what we've been doing with the NHS for the past three years. So, you know, we started with really small pilots. You know, uh, those that do not know how this works, so 11% of the total NHS budget goes into diabetes too. It's the single biggest uh, cost uh, driver for the NHS. And obviously, and, and it's estimated by that by 2035, one out of 10 Brits is going to have diabetes too. So it's a terrible problem. Wow. And once somebody develops diabetes too, that's going to be a, a, around about 100,000 pounds over the lifetime. So it's a huge, huge cost to the NHS. Now, the best way to pull people back from the, from the edge of the cliff, so to speak, is to make them a little bit more physically active and make them eat better. And NHS tries to achieve this through administering what they call a diabetes prevention program, which is a great thing that, you know, last 10 weeks and that aims just that, you know, to make people more physically active and eat better. Trouble with the existing diabetes prevention program is that the completion rate is really, really low. It's about 20%. So only 20% of pre-diabetic patients 
complete the program, which means that the rest of them actually end up developing diabetes too with very high probability. Mm-hmm. We, when we administer that diabetes prevention program using SweatCoin as a platform, then this completion rate goes from 20% to 90%. Uh, what we've seen with the pre-diabetic mm-hmm. patients that they lose about 6% of their body weight in 10 weeks. And instead of 20% uplift, which is the average for our users, they start walking 40% more and sometimes significantly more. And that is just that's, that's, that shows how a product that has a consumer grade can be very easily tailored and upgraded to cater to specific sub-segments of the, of the, of the population. Mm. Uh, and that's that's why it's important. So we deliver. We do uh, work with the NHS on diabetes right now. We're starting to expand into cardiovascular diseases. Yeah. And that's something that again aims to make people more physically active. And yeah, yeah. we are excited. I think it's uh, still, despite the fact that we've been working with the NHS for a long time, it's still very early days, and uh, we're looking to see how we can be helpful to the to the nation. Really interesting. And actually, w- what comes to mind for me is the the economics of this, I think, are fascinating because what you just said about, you know, a consumer product being useful. I can see this from the NHS perspective, which is that when you consider where is the highest value to the NHS of people doing exercise. So if you're the NHS, you go... We're spending so much money on these five conditions if only they exercised. And actually, you could probably attribute a monetary value to a certain amount of exercise per person if you know that a certain amount of exercise per person will prevent a certain complication, a certain relapse, a certain this, which again, you can cost. And so it's so it's, hit, it's hitting me here. Yeah, you're prescribing exercise, physical yes. exercise precisely. Yeah. You're prescribing physical exercise, but from an economic perspective, the value is literally you pay sweat coin. You pay the, the sweat coin economy to drive that exercise, but you are saving yeah. more than you're paying to a certain point. And obviously in diabetes, that has a certain value. In cardiovascular disease, that has a certain value. But even for the general person with prevention, that has a certain value. And But I I can see it from your perspective too, that actually you pick off the highest value and then you just start going down from there. So you you start with diabetes and cardiovascular disease, you then move on to this, that, the other, like all these different things where, where weight loss and exercise can be of significant benefit those people aren't then going to present back to the NHS and cause more of a problem and a a financial problem for the NHS or waiting this problem or this problem or that problem. Like I can, I can see the model. The model is incredibly clear. Um, So I guess what's the catch? Is there a catch? (laughs) There's, there's a catch and there's a, uh, there's a caveat. So the catch there is that it sounds so simple. It almost sounds too good to be true. This is it. And I think that we unfortunately are used to, thinking, oh, it's all convoluted, it's all complicated, mostly because we've been suffering, like the preventative health has been suffering generally from inability to attribute results yeah. to the reactions. I, yeah. That is to see the ROI, return on investment. Yeah. You know, there's been like, you know, the positive propaganda of healthy lifestyle, you know, me, hundreds of millions of pounds, billions probably have been invested into advertising healthier lifestyles, supporting all sorts of programs and stuff like that. 
Trouble is that nobody knows, you know, that uh, that famous uh, maxim of old, old, old marketing. You know, I know that 50% of my budget, you know, goes down the drain. I don't know which, which 50%, right? So I think that mentality has been around for too long. And now with the advent of mobile technology and internet and mobile apps, all of a sudden in our case, we can see literally real time. So this is the intervention. This is what's been uh, kind of, this is the experience we've given to the user. This is how much they've been able to claim. And this is how much more active they've become. Literally, we can, we can see it on a daily basis. So I think that is that the, that the paradigm shift needs to be accepted and embraced. I don't think it's fully happened. That is, you know, it's happened in the industries where industries move faster and they kind of, they are more receptive to the future. But the industries that are more um, kind of, you know, slow moving, you know, and uh, less open to adopt new things, and sometimes rightly so, because sometimes you have to be conservative. And sometimes you have to move at a lower pace to make sure that everybody is engaged and everybody is involved and you cannot you cannot afford to leave anyone behind. So some industries are naturally slower moving and uh, less open to uh, adopting new technology. So that's the, that's the uh, catch. The caveat here is that it would be a gross oversimplification to say, oh, I'm going to pay you a few pence just for you to go outside and book. That's not going to cut it that way. Because it's not just rewards, it's building that engaging experience. At the end of the day, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to say, James, would you, how about you go outside and walk 10,000 steps, I'm going to pay you 30, 30, 30 pence. And say, you know what, uh, no thanks. Keep it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the reality is when you convert this into an incredibly interesting, exciting and engaging experience. And that's why I'm saying it's not just rewards, it's the combination of gamification and rewards. Gamification per se can be effective if applied to the right underlying behaviors, but it can be a complete failure. And we've seen it, you know, many, many times that people try to use gamification and it's so blunt and stupid mm. and it fails. Yeah. yeah. Same thing with rewards. You can use rewards and sometimes it can be just terrible. Mm. So at the end of the day, you want to be able to balance both tools and when they work in close collaboration, it's almost like Indian, then this is then when you create something that changes people's behaviors and creates new habit, habitual loops. So I think that's that's the caveat and that's let's not oversimplify, you know, things that we do, because at the end of the day, it's just building an experience that's that's based around both gamification and, and rewards. I love it. Anton, thank you so much for joining me. I know that you've got to shoot, but if I'm going to summarize this podcast, I think you're an expert in behavior and behavior change because actually you've done that with your team and your culture. You've certainly done that with your product and sweat coin. And actually the way that that can now make some real significant impact in not only UK healthcare, but global healthcare, it's, it seems, it seems open-ended. It seems like the, uh, the sky is very blue and, and the ceiling is very high for the impact that, you've, that you're about to make So, um, or already making by the sounds of things. So, Anton, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. If people want to get in touch with you or Sweatcoin, what's the best way for them to do so? Uh, LinkedIn and you know, Sweatcoin, just uh, go to our website. There's an information uh, inbox and uh, please put my name into the subject and uh, we'll make sure that we'll come back to you. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. 
Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.